Did you know that you could earn ASHA CEUs for listening to these podcast episodes? I think this might be the most fun and most convenient way to earn CEUs ever. Whether you are sitting by your pool during quarantine or uh, trying to fill your commutes once we head back into a normal life here, uh, the opportunities are endless and it's so incredibly convenient. And the best part is if you use the code TALKING20, you get $20 off the PodCourse membership. That is a steal. So if you're interested in getting started, head to speechtherapypd.com slash teletherapy. Uh, click the button at the top of the page to become a member, and then just scroll down to the PodCourse membership section and click that white button. Can't wait to see you in all of the future courses. Hello, and welcome to Talking Teletherapy, a weekly webinar and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, where we dive into the ins and outs of teletherapy for speech pathologists. Each episode of Talking Teletherapy is worth 0.1 ASHA CEU when you complete the accompanying webinar on SpeechTherapyPD.com. So go ahead and visit SpeechTherapyPD.com teletherapy for more information about earning ASHA CEUs along with this podcast. My name is Leanne Porter. I'm an outpatient speech and language pathologist. I work with adults in a hospital, and I also host the Speech Uncensored podcast that covers all topics related uh, to medical speech and language pathology. And so now, without further ado, um, let's get on topic for tonight and hear from our guest. All right. Hello. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Leanne Porter. I'll be your host this evening for our edition of Talking Teletherapy tonight. Um, our topic is going to be providing dysphagia evaluation via telepractice. And my guest this evening is Professor Elizabeth Ward. Um, I just want to tell you a little bit about Professor Ward to get started. Um, she's the director of the Center for Functioning and Health for Queensland Health and is a co-joint professor of the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Queensland. Professor Ward has over 350 publications and has received over 4 million in competitive grant funding um, for research in topics such as telehealth, head and neck cancer, motor speech disorders, and dysphagia. Professor Ward is a fellow of Speech Pathology Australia which is in recognition of her contributions to the field. So, hi, how's it going, Professor? <laughs> Good, it's lovely. Thank you for this opportunity, even though it's early morning, Saturday morning, and I know it's a Friday night thing for you guys, so I hope at least some of you are listening with a glass of wine to make it civilized. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best kind of CEU. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I am so excited um, for our talk today. We're gonna to be focusing on the clinical swallow evaluation for our talk and how to do that um, via virtual visits um, when you're not in the same room with the person that you're evaluating. Um, so was there anything else that you wanted to cover kind of as a background on you and your work that I didn't cover? Um, uh, no. Um, uh, 
as you'll see when I share slides, uh, I just also wanted to acknowledge um, Claire Burns, her Dr. Claire Burns, who I work with all the time. We are sort of two parts of one brain, and um, and this is also a lot of the stuff I'm talking about today is is because she and I worked it out. So um, I'm just acknowledging that I'm talking about stuff we've done together. So, but yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, I've got some slides that I think you guys are going to share with the uh, participants later on if they want them or. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Do you want me to open them up now and get underway or? Yeah, let's go ahead. Let's get on. Let's go ahead. Why not? Why not? Uh, nope. I'm disabled. You've disabled my share screening. Sorry. Oh, okay. I'll just have the our host moderator pop on and um, yeah. open that up real quick. Darla, if you can just give me capacity. But um, yeah, I suppose I can get started uh, while we're waiting for that um, is I know thank you for joining a lot of you have been sort of thrust into telepractice in this last little while because of COVID um, uh, it's been a bit of a, a challenge for I know for many of you to get up to speed and to get ready and to be able to be doing telepractice and I'm really really um, excited by how many clinicians have just uh, made that huge jump in such a short amount of time, which is, is really quite incredible because we know how hard it is um, to do. So we, and I know for you guys, it's been um, to, to do telepractice in the States. Not, you knew about it, you knew it was there. There was a lot of other problems though with respect to reimbursement that made that you know quite difficult and stuff for you to do. Uh, we are a little bit different. So here in Australia, uh, we don't we have a public health service and so we weren't quite so uh, bound by those sorts of barriers. And as you can see from this image of Australia at night, I love to use this because you can just see where our cities are and where our masses of space and empty space are. And so um, for like the last uh, probably 20, 30 years, telepractice has definitely been a part of our healthcare model because we've got such distance problems and stuff. So this is where I'm from, um, poorly drawn, I know, sorry. Uh, but uh, this is the state of Queensland and um, we're actually based uh, right down in that sort of uh, tip right down at the end. And uh, we have lots of problems with distance and lots of problems with people in rural and regional areas uh, who can't get to healthcare. So our public health service invested in the equipment and the infrastructure about a decade ago. So we've been very lucky. I know many of you guys have only now just got your hands on systems that let you, you know, let you do telepractice. Um, but we've had that for a little while. So we've been a bit fortunate in that way. And, and that's given us that opportunity to uh, really be able to improve our patient support and our service efficiencies, look at costs and, and reducing that for patients um, and reducing patient burden so that they can get into care, whether or not they're regional or rural, or now even if they're living in the big city right next to our hospital, they use telepractice. So, um, so yeah, we've had a little bit more experience. I'm very happy to share our learnings and, and what we've been able to do with that. Um, for some reason, my slides are not, oh, there we are. And the other caveat I just wanted to, to mention today is what we're talking about is a clinical swallow exam. So this bit here, um, what we're talking about in dysphagia, whenever we're talking about assessing it, we've got a continuum from one end, which is just identifying if there's a risk, 
all the way up to then our instrumental assessments where we can actually confirm exactly the level of aspiration, how far down, um, you know, is there any reaction to it? Uh, we can identify our pharyngeal deficits, our esophageal deficits. That's the other end of the spectrum. And in the middle is our clinical swallow exam. Some people still refer to it as a clinical bedside, um, but a clinical swallow exam, that's where we look at our patient's capabilities, how they're eating their meals and how they're coping and how, you know, what other effects like fatigue, impulsivity, et cetera, are affecting a patient's capability. And this is the test that we're talking about today. And I wanted to stress it because I know uh, there's a lot of concern about can I still look at a patient with dysphagia if I can't use my instrumental tests, which has been our problem while we're um, in COVID. Uh, but of course you can, and you just have to remember the limitations of that clinical swallow exam, what it can't do, but it can do a lot of things for you. It can really um, give you a lot of information about how the patient's functioning, um, how they're able to manage and how urgent it's gonna be for you to get that instrumental assessment or can you get some management happening now uh, to keep that person either eating or drinking or to stop them eating and drinking if they're very unsafe and be able to do interim management uh, until you can get to the assessments that you need to do. So it's just reminding you, you know, you can't diagnose aspiration, you can't diagnose pharyngeal deficits, those sorts of things. Um, there's limitations, but there's also lots and lots and lots of advantages. Mm -hmm. um, Liz, if I can ask a question real quick. Yeah. Um, do you use the Yale Swallow, Swallow protocol or like the three ounce? Yeah. Um, so, so not so. Um, what we have so in in Australia, we have what's considered sort of screening. So that's so the the patient who attends the emergency department. Our nurses are trained in screening protocols. Uh, it varies in different hospitals exactly what is used, but there's typically some sort of combination of a water swallow test and then a checklist of risk indicators. And that screening element is often just done by our nursing staff or our allied health assistants. And then that gets triggers the referral of the patient into our service. And then we tend to do a clinical swallow exam. If a, if a speech pathologist is already there, we don't just do a water swallow, we may as well do a proper clinical swallow exam. That's the model that we tend to use here in Australia. Okay, all right, thank you. That's all right. So um, I know Leanne, when we were talking, you were sort of interested in what was the evidence and do, like, do we have evidence for doing this? And is it safe? Because that's, at the end of the day, we should only ever be doing things that are safe and that have evidence um, in our practice. And so just uh, because telepractice is new for many of you, understanding that the research in this field has some sort of different steps than other fields and begins with uh, system testing. So it's often referred to as either the system architecture or the setup. And that's looking at how you, like, what do you need to do it? Is it just video conferencing? Or do you need special things? So if you're doing voice assessments, do you need to be able to record voice and, and actually analyze those samples? If it's working with a child in a language assessment, do you need to be able to share screens and have touch screen capabilities? That's where telepractice begins at testing. What do you need to have everything so that you can do that service as well via telepractice? Um, as you would do it in person. Then you go into taking that model and checking that it does work when you test it with large numbers of patients. 
The other element, of course, that's important is consumer satisfaction. Like we don't always do that in other areas. We introduce a new swallow technique or something. We don't ask consumers what they think. But that was, that's very important in telly because they're right at the beginning, there's lots of perceptions that you know, old people won't use it, no one will like it, kids can't, you know, it will, all those things had to be disproved by mm. research. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, there's the implementations. It's great to invent something and show that it works in a little uh, research setting, but what happens when you take it for a spin and put it out into clinics? And so that's what we've done. And um, the research articles have been will be provided to you, uh, the references for those provided to you afterwards. So please go and read them because this is a really, really, really short summary. But basically, so we began that journey um, with this first paper that was published in 2011. And what it showed us is we need particular setup things for doing a clinical swallow exam. So we have our online speech pathologist at one end, and then we have a patient at the other end, but it became very clear straight away that we did need to have an assistant at that end. And we'll talk about that assistant role and what it needs to do, et cetera. But it's all about helping the online clinician, helping the patient, because some of our patients post-stroke, they can't hold their cups, hold the implements, they can't reposition their chairs. So we need somebody there for those things, as well as patient safety. So we identified immediately that we needed more another person to be involved in those assessment models. We also identified that we need coloured food and fluids. Just like when FIS was uh, first brought on the scene, we understood we needed that so that we get better vision of where the fluid goes on a FIS assessment. Same here, having coloured fluid, see the blue in that cup there, and you can see in the picture above it of the the sip happening above, it helps you see where the fluid is, how it's approaching the mouth, has the person taken an amount from the cup, and if you use clear cups and spoons, that helps you with that vision as well, and if there's anything left behind. And then we also uh, decided to add in a pulse oximeter into the model. Now, this isn't about using a pulse oximeter to say, ooh, somebody swallowed and their their, um, oxygenation levels dropped 2%, they must be aspirating. We didn't bring it in for that reason. We brought it in just as a way to monitor the patient's sort of health through the system, through the session. Because if we keep that um, in mind, many of our patients are unwell, uh, they're medically fragile, It's just a way of us monitoring the session remotely as well, having that uh, assistant continually saying, no, their stats are good. No, they're feeling fine. They're looking great. It's helping us also to monitor through the session the patient and and their safety because we're not right there with them. We also found that we needed different angles. So we needed to be able to either move the patient or move the system so you could get close-up views. When you want to look into the mouth, you need a flashlight to look in the mouth. Um, Or as an Australian, we call it a torch. Um, I've realised the difference in wording on that one. Um, And we also found that you need to be on the side for our swallow trials. And we put a piece of tape on the neck. And this came about because when we first were trialling this, we found you can't see flesh move. Um, And so the piece of tape is simply that. Um, I get all these amazing emails all the time. Um, Exactly what, how many millimetres above and below thyroid knot should I put it? It's not, it's nothing that scientific. It simply is a marker. That marker shows you when the larynx moves 
um, and gives you that information because it's really hard to see otherwise. And, and then we also really encourage the use of a lapel microphone as well as just your system microphone. It's not, we're not talking here about cervical auscultation, that's not what it's doing. It's simply a closer microphone to catch up any of those small throat clears or those sorts of things um, and really give you that better quality of the patient's voice, post swallow, etc. Um, that's where it's really good. So all of that, that, that slide there is about four years of research and trials and testing and, and, and working out how and what and what was needed to make sure we could do and see and hear what we do and see and hear when we have a patient with us in person. Mm. So we took that model, we then did this first study, which was just with mild um, uh, patients, and then we went up to a large randomised control trial that included everyone with all sorts of severity levels and confirmed that if a person did the assessment in person or via telepractice with that same patient at the exact same time, they came up with 90% of the time the exact same decision. And so we were able to then move forward with confidence with the model. Then we asked patients what they thought. And this is important because, yes, everyone loved it. They liked it. There's always a percentage of people. It's usually about 15 20% who say, you know, look, love, it's great, but I prefer to do, you know, face-to-face. -face. And that's the important message here is that from that research is we are never, ever proposing that everyone should just only ever do telly. I know we got forced to do that in COVID. We had to live with that in COVID because it was an exceptional circumstance. But as you go forward doing this in the future, um, you use telly when and it's appropriate and if the patient wants it and is ready to do it, etc. It's an option. It's not a mandatory model. I just think that's that's really important to, to get across. And then uh, Claire led uh, most recently this amazing big implementation trial that we did uh, across uh, 18 different clinical sites, which was across five different health services, and put telepractice into their care models. These are places where you had a speech pathologist who's in one setting, but they also provide services to little, um, smaller service uh, sites in their in their district. And so the idea was instead of them once a fortnight or once every month going to those smaller sites, uh, they could be more responsive, more quickly refer, uh, take any referrals, manage those dysphagia referrals much more quickly rather than waiting till they were next at that site. Um, and uh, of course, this model showed that it changed saved a lot of money and cost and things like that. So essentially, um, there's enough there to say it's safe and it's worth doing and it does save money and time if the situation is relevant for you going forward. All right, that was a really great summary of, like you said, many years of research and hard work going into it. So <laughs> thank you guys for getting ahead of this, <laughs> doing all the legwork. That's all right. That's what we're here for. <laughs> <laughs> and I really liked that um, series of pictures you had that showed like through that research, you realized that you needed um, an assistant with the person going through it and all the reasoning behind why you want um, the liquid to have coloring in it so that you can mm -hmm. see it, you know where it's going, why there should be tape there. Not because we want to measure how much we think it's moving, just that we see that it is moving. 
Exactly, because it's just the same as what you would do when you're in person. Um, when you're up on a ward, and, and often you, perhaps the, a speech pathologist would be palpating and just holding. I mean, they're not measuring with their fingers. There's no standardised finger measurement. Um, it's a, Again, it's about making sure the telly can do what you can do normally. Um, and I can hear your puppy, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not my puppies, that's okay. That's right, that's fine. <laughs> So um, these next few slides sort of take you through those bits a little bit in more detail. Um, but first I want to say that there's, uh, this slide and the next has got information about a link to a learning package for anyone who's, who listens to this uh, and then wants to go and actually truly set up the service, really learn how to do it. There's a, an, a free learning package uh, that you can go in that was created by Claire. Um, and it just takes you through everything that you need to do and everything that you need to learn. And it's, you just go in, register, click that you're not from our health service, it doesn't matter. Um, and then you can learn everything more. But today I'm sort of just gonna hit some of the high notes about the important things to think about. And one of those is, is room and positioning. I know, uh, you know we're all working in homes and you know everything's not ideal at the moment. But particularly when you're doing telly, you need to really think about your environment and making sure it's quiet enough, um, particularly if you're wanting to listen to, to sort of the throat sounds and coughs and voice quality. And also that there is adequate lighting. Um, I'm sure all of us have had a Zoom where somebody's got light behind them and they're just a, a shadow in front of the camera. Um, so you need to avoid all of that. So you do have to think a little bit about those things. But then these two photos uh, just represent a patient sort of in a lying position and then in a seating position doing an assessment. Uh, so this is sort of where you've also got to think about, uh, do you, are you going to have a chairs that can be swiveled or moved around in the room? Or are you going to have a system that's on something that can be moved around to the patient? Because either you move the, the patient or the system because as we'll talk about those different camera angles you need, um, you need to think about that. So um, you might want to think about the chairs that you have and, and then whether or not your system is on a super duper amazing thing like in this photo or it can just be a laptop on a, um, a patient's bed table thing, yeah? Yeah, so when I'm looking at this top picture here, um, I had a couple questions because also when um, your team was doing this research, you were looking at um, people across large distances. Mm -hmm. And so maybe they would have like a very small uh, clinic that they could go to, but didn't, wasn't staffed by a speech and language pathologist. Mm -hmm. So they might be able to go to a clinic with medical resources, with technology and not necessarily do it from, you know, a laptop in their home too. Mm -hmm. Was that kind of the thought? Yes. Too? Yeah, that's, that's the way we developed the services because it wasn't, um, we've only just more recently gone into the home home per se. Our challenges with Australia is there's many services that don't have a speech pathologist. So yes, we, we the patient can just go to their local service and link in to the speech pathologist and that's how the assessment goes. So yes, they just go into the local health clinic that has a telesystem and then and as long as there's an assistant at that end with them, then mm -hmm. we can do that assessment. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think that's an important distinction to make too, that that's kind of how your, your mindset and your framework was for creating this. And, and when we want to take and adapt this, we have to recognize that and, and make those adaptations for what if the person is at home? What if yes. the assistant isn't like a trained health professional, but a family member? Exactly. Considerations like that. Yeah, absolutely. And so particularly, um, and we'll talk about this more when we get to the assistant, because it's a really good point. Um, we are now doing into the home. Um, and what you find uh, most of the time, their loved one, they've been managing that dysphagia at home, for, and they know how to manage and, you know, what they'll do in a choking event. But it's, it's in that situation, you do need to still do some orientation and training with that person. But if you're actually, say you are a speech pathologist who routinely would normally drive and go into a residential aged care home or into a smaller service, in that situation where it is a routine and regular service model, you can have people and a room and stuff at that end who become like your part of your team. Mm -hmm. and are trained and then everything moves just super 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 efficiently um it's a little bit more clunky when you're linking into home and you're dealing with a home laptop and a person and a yeah home lighting and things like that but it's still very much doable mm -hmm. you just have to spend a little bit more time working out the setup having a phone call before having a chat working out how you're going to be able to do it so um, so the vision, um, and this is another point, ideally, whether it's the patient side or the clinician side, the larger the screen, the better. I, is, I know we can all do things on phones and it's not just because I'm old and it's a small screen and I don't like it, but um, it's better, everything's better on a bigger screen. So if they do have an iPad instead of a phone, um, if you can use a bigger computer screen rather than a tiny tablet, um, that's always better the bigger the vision is always better and then if your system allows it which most things do like you know we have here today that split screen concept where you've got your main information you're watching so if you're the patient you can see your clinician but you can also see yourself um, same as for the clinician i i think it's really crucial for the clinician end that they can see themselves because to make sure they're not doing the session like this and there's nobody there um, or like this and they, the patient can't see their face it's all about engaging um, through the image and so it's really important to have that split screen if you can so that you can make sure uh, you are giving those good visual demonstrations that sort of thing and the patient can see themselves doing the task and matching it up. So it's a really great biofeedback as well as ensuring that you've still got that good interaction happening between each other if you can have a split screen view. And as I mentioned, we've sort of got, we've got four views. We've got first of all that conversational view where there's yourself, the patient, the assistant, you know, all in the, the frame. Then you need to be able to come into that closer just headshot, you know, where you're just really wanting to focus on the, the head and neck area for your the beginnings of your oromotor tasks. You need to be able to then get even closer so that you can have a look inside the mouth. Um, and then you need to be able to turn the person on to the side or turn your system to the side of the person so that uh, you can get that lateral view. So you've just got to have thought through how you're going to be able to do all of those things. And as I mentioned before, I really um, stress if it's possible to have a look 
on microphone at your patient end that is better or at least make sure the microphone that you're using is as close to that person as possible just for that better audio um, than just using your, your general room speaker sort of thing. And then, yes, we were talking through this before, the clinical resources. Now, this is sort of the interesting part with tele um, because, of course, you've got to make sure those resources are at your patient end. So there's various different ways. You can make up little kits and you can send them to your patients or if your patient is going into a service that then you're linking into, um, you can uh, make sure that that service always has things. But it. It's sort of, um, it is no, not that much different than when we leave our departments, when normally when we're there doing in-person care, you're going up, you're thinking, what do I need to take up with me to the, onto the wards today? And making sure that all those resources are there for what you might want to do with that patient. You just have to have thought about that beforehand and make sure it's available at the patient end um, and, and organised at the patient end so that you're not waiting for someone to mix a fluid or something like that. Um, that's really important to think about. So um, then, you know, the assistant. Now, this, this is sort of, to me, it's the make or break thing here. Um, I do get a lot of emails saying, uh, my patient's really cognitively fine. They don't need an assistant at their end. And I, my answer to that is, well, I, that's, uh, it's the patient safety factor here. So if your hospital service will underwrite you for that safety factor, then that's your decision. Um, at the end of the day, you do need somebody else there. It just has to be somebody else there because the ultimate bottom line is if something goes wrong for that patient. Because as we talked about, these are our patients with dysphagia. They typically have some sort of medical instability or medical state that can change. We also are going to feed and give them, you know, fluid, fluid, food and fluids and there's a chance of a choking event. So we have to have had thought that through, just like we do anyway, whenever we're going on home visits or, or going up to the ward. What do I do if something goes wrong? But you're not there, so you've got to think, what will be my arrangement with my assistant at that end if something goes wrong? So it depends on your system, the service. If you're linking into an aged care home and it's a nurse, I mean, that person will be able to do what they need to do if the, if the assistant is a nurse. If, if you're linking into a service and the person helping is maybe just an allied health assistant or a healthcare worker assistant, they might not be comfortable helping the patient, but they can do the emergency procedure at that site to get a doctor or get a nurse to come through. Or if you are going into the home, who's going to be responsible to call the ambulance or, what, or start CPR or whatever you decide is within the realm of the risk and the needs for that patient. So you just have to have had those conversations with the assistant. So the safety is the key thing that makes it integral, but having the assistant just there is also helps the whole session run really well. Because um, sometimes internet connection's not that great. You might be able to get an okay look in the mouth, but you're not really sure. The assistant can really have a good look and say, actually, yes, the back two teeth are missing. Or, uh, oh yes, I can see a tiny bit of residue in the mouth. So 
I mean, that uh, that sort of additional set of assistant there is is really, really, really important. So who it is will depend on who you can have. Ideally, if you're setting up a service that you're going to use tele um, into, into an aged care home, into a smaller service, um, into the school, whatever, having one person or two people who become trained, who become your assistants, and there's training and resources in that package I referred you to to train the um, assistant, then that is the best, you know, because then you know what you're doing, everyone knows how to work together, and your sessions just zoom through. So. And then the other question I get a lot about is, is who can I do this with? And um, I, in our large randomised control trial, we did say that the level of agreement between the two clinicians was a little bit lower when you got to the people with really complex, severe um, medical states and, and stage. And that's no different than on a normal ward. Like if you go up and you see somebody who's really complex, you that is a much more difficult situation and a much more difficult assessment. So I would say if it's your first tele-assessment, then, you know, don't do the most complex person in the universe if you can avoid it. Um, but uh, if you can't, you know, then you just have to remember complex, severe patients are harder to assess and it will be hard to, and, and more time and more effort required to do via tele, just as it is if you're in person. But other than that, essentially, it's the same rules. Um, first of all, are they medically stable and allowed and appropriate to have a swallow assessment? Are they alert enough, sufficiently alert enough to do that assessment? So those two decisions are the same as normal in-person care. But then also, can you move that patient around for the assessment and can you get your system to that patient, you know, either the patient to the system or the system to the patient? Is that possible? I saw your hand go up, Leanne. Pardon? Oh, sorry, put, I thought you put your hand up, which so I thought that meant you wanted to ask them. <laughs> sorry. I think no? I was just keeping hair out of my face. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally fine. You've always got to look good on camera. It's always important. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so it's sort of really um, don't, don't be too, don't sort of have these hard and fast rules that we can't see severe patients or we can't do this. It's like anything. Learn on an easier case first, get your skills up, and then you will find you can manage um, all your patients just like you manage when you're on the ward. And as you will know, when you're on a ward or when you're seeing patients, sometimes, it's, you know, patients' cognitive states or their impulsivity makes things hard. You've got to remember that's not telly that's making it hard. It's, it is just the complexity of the assessments that we do. And then I just, uh, my other sort of point is just always, as with any assessment that we do with any patient, our patient safety is always first in our mind. And via tele, I know that's always everyone's first concerns is, is about safety. But remember, just if you do the model as it's described and you have an assistant at that end, make sure you're always rechecking that your patient is suitable for assessment. They might have been assessed uh, suitable yesterday when you got the referral, you made the appointment, set it all up, but are they still okay today to do that assessment? Same as if you, you know, same as when you're on the wards. Um, and making sure you have that clear emergency protocol in place, just like when you're in your own clinic. 
um, those core elements uh, just need to be in place. So now we can sort of talk about doing it, but um, Leanne, any, any questions or queries about any of that at this point? Um, no, not so far. Um, okay. We've gotten a couple questions about accessing your handouts that you've prepared, like for example, the slides that we're going through right now. So yep. we're just making sure that those are up on speechtherapypd.com's website and that they're accessible. So we're just working that out, but otherwise we're doing good. But this okay. is a good reminder um, for everyone who's um, with us live. Um, if you're coming across some information, you have a question about it, use that Q&A box and let us know. Um, we can answer them as we go, we don't always have to wait till the end. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm very happy to. Um, I, when I was talking to Leanne, I was saying, you know, I've been a university lecturer for uh, 25 years now, so I'm very used to most people, A, ignoring me, or, you know, <laughs> and or asking a million questions halfway through any sentence, so it doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> so sort of now, now that we've sort of talked about the key bits you need to make sure you've thought about, how does it sort of go together? And and I suppose these slides, I, I want to show you how actually just similar it is to what you would normally do, just with a tiny few extra little tweaks. So normally before we see a patient to do a clinical swallow exam, uh, you have to review your medical information. And because you're often not at that site, that might involve either having to do a phone call, perhaps to that doctor or to the nursing care or it might be that you do have remote access to those medical records that sort of thing you have to start to work out how you're going to get that information um, routinely so you just have to plan um, that and sort that out for your service what's going to be the way that you can get information about that patient before your your actual assessment then it, the, the difference then is instead of just sort of grabbing a bag of all your kit and going up to the ward or going into your clinic room, you do have to have thought about what, based on what I know about this patient, what do I think I need to make sure I have at that patient end? What foods and fluids may I think could be suitable for trialling? What other things need to be there, etc.? Do I need to make sure any handouts have been sent forward beforehand? Just having that little extra bit of a think and a little bit of extra time just to plan that. But once you start having all those resources either together in an insight or you know, easy to pull together, you will find that that step speeds up quite dramatically. Then the, before the session, there are just some jobs for the assistant as well. Again, that you, the two of you have had a chat, so you know your emergency protocols, but also um, simple things like making sure the device is charged um, and so that the laptop's not gonna drop out and lose power halfway through um, and that they do have everything there. Not sort of, oh, I'll mix that fluid while the assessment's happening, but you know, that everything is done and ready before the assessment. So again, if you're working with a person who's new to being an assistant, you'll have to talk them through that, um, maybe on a phone call before. Whereas if you're working in a service model where you're routinely linking into another service and you're, you've got a regular assistant who you use, then they'll have all that ready for you. So then, the beginning of the session, um, it's 
no different than if you go up to a ward and you take up students, you always introduce who's who and why they're there. Same in tally. So who's there, what your role is as the online clinician, what the um, assistance role is, and um, then just doing your usual patient identification and consent steps. And then one of the things uh, just not to forget to do is the steps that you would normally do when you're in person with a person. So just making sure you do summarise what you know, ask them about their swallows uh, experience, what are their issues, what are they, if they can tell you, if they're able to. Um, make sure you explain how the session is going to happen and answer any questions before you start, exactly as you do when you normally start a session. But I have seen people get a bit flustered by being online and they jump straight into assessing a patient. Don't do that. Don't forget to make that bond connection link with your peer person before you go into your assessment. But then, okay, now you're moving into starting to collect your clinical information. And this is, at this point, your camera is usually wide because you've been having, you've been talking to the patient and the assistant. Sometimes there might also be a family member in the room as well because they might have been the person reporting for that patient. Um, so you're going to move from that sort of wider view now to come in a bit closer to do your oromotor assessment. And so in your oromotor assessment, you have those two views. You have that sort of head and neck shot, and then you need to zoom right into the mouth. So this is where you just need to think about the order in which you want to do your tasks, because you don't want to be zooming in, zooming out, zooming in. <laughs> um, so you want to think, okay, I'm going to do these um, uh, face, jaw, um, lip, tongue movements. Then I'm going to zoom in and I'm going to have a good look at the tongue, have a look at the teeth, have a look at the um, velum, that sort of thing. So just, just think about the order. It mightn't be the order you normally do when you're up on the ward or you're in your rooms, um, but just try not to have to fiddle around with and move your equipment too much because it wastes time in your session. And again, this is where your patient assistant can help. Um, you know, they can feel jaw strength. They can have a really good look. If, if you're not sure, if your lighting's not great and you really can't tell the back of the mouth, they can give you that information about teeth or um, that sort of thing. And they can help with holding a torch or a flashlight. I'll remember to use the right word, um, into the mouth. Now, I don't um, promote products because people can use whatever products, but there are products on the market that are tongue depressors now that light up. They're great. Um, there's a number of companies that make them. They're great um, for telly because not only do you have your tongue depressor, but then you get all of that um, lighting of the oral cavity. So if there's situations that you could consider using that, so someone who you are going to be doing regular assessments with and they, you know, you want to send one to their house or something, I mean, they're cheap enough and, and easy enough to use for that sort of purpose. So that's something to think about rather than having hands and tongue depressions and, and flashlights. Those are great. And then... Once you've done your oromotor, then like you would do on the wards or in your rooms, you make those decisions about, can I do some fluid and food trials? Is this patient suitable to move to that? And this is where the assistant will help to move your patient or move your computer system relative so that you can get that side on view and you can see that tape um, so that you can see the bolus approaching the mouth and you can also see that laryngeal movement. Um, and then as the arrow indicates, you're just following the normal steps you'd normally do. Do your dry swallows, um, 
your assistant will help you uh, help bring the foods and fluids to the patient that you want to trial if they aren't able um, to do it themselves. So many of our stroke patients with their hemiparesis can't um, you know, do all of that. So the assistant can facilitate all of that and can hold the cup, um, administer a sip, that sort of thing under your direction. And then you're just doing what you normally do. You're listening and observing for clinical signs of aspiration and, um, and, and things that would increase aspiration risk, such as rapid fatigue, um, you know, uh, impulsivity, those sorts of behaviours um, while people are eating and drinking. And all the time as well, just checking in with the patient. Don't, I know they're not in the room with you, but you are interacting with them. So you're always just keeping an eye on their medical state. Are they getting more drowsy? Are they starting to slide down in the chair? Um, is something happening? Are they becoming slower to respond? Yeah, keep all that in mind. And then do any compensatory strategies that you may want to trial, like a chin tuck. You can either instruct that, or um, if, if you do have an assistant at that end who knows how to demonstrate those behaviours, and that's again in the learning package, um, then you, know, you can get them to demonstrate but equally, you can demonstrate whatever's needed. And at the end of the session, same, same, same decisions. Uh, you know, you're still making that decision about is this person at least safe to be on oral intake or shouldn't be on oral intake? Is further assessment required and how urgently is that needed? Um, is there mealtime assistance needed for this person? Are other um, professionals needed? All those normal clinical decisions we make after a clinical swallow exam um, all can be done. Then with documenting, just make sure you do include in your documentation that the session was a clinical swallow exam and it was conducted by telepractice. And make sure you use the words um, that you can use for a clinical swallow exam, which is that you have observed dysphagia risk, you have observed clinical signs of aspiration, you can't confirm aspiration, might have only been penetration and they coughed. Um, but you, you, you can see there was clinical signs um, of aspiration and then, you know, the results of your oromotor assessments. But you cannot make statements about looking at pharyngeal stage deficits, etc. Telly's great, but it still doesn't give you x-ray vision. So it <laughs> doesn't solve that problem. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, that's, that's sort of the basics of how to do it. These last two slides are just something about thinking, thinking going forward. I know you all came into this in COVID. Um, you all had to, you know, do things. Um, but don't drop everything once you get out of the COVID situation. Because there's lots of ways we can use tele to assist and support our patients. And I can speak for our patients how much they appreciate the flexibility of doing some in-person sessions and some tele-sessions, even when they live next door to our hospital. So this is sort of, these green ones are the models we've sort of been talking about. You as a speech pathologist linking in with a client or a client and their facilitator and carer. But I mean, there's a whole world of other options out there. You can do your tele, your dysphagia education sessions via tele. Uh, we do this a lot with our head and neck cancer patient groups who are about to start their chemo radiotherapy. Uh, we can have a group and talk to them as a group about what they're going to experience. And they don't have to physically come in and sit in a room as a group. 
you can um, also consider using this model for a clinical handover so or share care or even mentoring and troubleshooting so you might have a patient and you're not sure so you and your patient can be there and you can link in with another clinician maybe a more senior one from your service who's located somewhere else or somebody else and you can do that sort of shared um, discussion and, and troubleshooting to improve the care. And then of course, you can always have models where you can bring another professional in. So you and the dietitian can see the patient at the same time if there's a complex issue that needs to be managed or you and the doctor, or you can deal with the family and the extended family and the client in a case discussion. So just the, there's so many, so many opportunities um, to still do the care that we normally would do, but start to think about it in a different way. So this is my last slide. And just to make you sort of start to think of moving away from our old models, where it was in-person dominant, it was you and a patient in a room. Maybe you did a phone follow-up now and again. Rarely, maybe you might've trialed some telly. In our new integrated care models that we really advocate is using tele and in-person interchangeably for whenever it's needed. So you might start, maybe you do do your first session in person because the patient happened to be there in your service. But then you can do a couple of sessions, follow-ups via tele. Then you might have another session where you bring another professional in because it's needed. Um, you might then just do some phone follow-ups. You might then go back to having another in-person assessment and more tele. It's, it's mixing it up for the need. What is needed right now? What does the patient prefer? What can we do that still is safe, effective, but shifts our care model to a patient-focused care model? And that's, my, I think, my, my big end statement I want to end on. Tele is not just because it's cool and it involves equipment. That wasn't why I did it. I started this back in, what is it, 2003, because I wanted better care options for our patients. Why do our sick patients have to drive 40 kilometres or, um, you know, to come and see us when I could link in and see them somewhere closer to home? And so, you know, that's, that's where I think we need to think about Forget about whether it's harder for us or we've got to learn something new. It's about what's best for our patients. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much, Liz. That was so comprehensive and succinct at the same time, like two of my favorite things, like for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Um, well, we had um, one question pop up and um, one of our listeners would like you to state that free learning packet site again. Mm -hmm. um, so that free, yeah, so it is, um, so if, because you will be get given um, access to these slides, so it's all written out on the slides. Um, I can, do you want me to scroll back to that slide, just have it open while we're talking? Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, so, yeah, so essentially it's, um, these are the instructions for how to um, log into it and the website, but again, they'll be on your slides. Um, if there's any problems, so Claire's email that is down the bottom. And as I said, it was made for that big implementation project. So it's got, now, of course, it's up to you how you make it work for your service, but there's example types of forms, there's instructions for managers, instructions for the clinician, and instruction for the um, assistant. And so if you're sort of setting up the model, all those sorts of resources are there, and um, that can just really help you uh, 
consider all the things that you know you can't cover in a 40 minute um, little thing. So um, yeah, you just log on, register, you'll get a link. Usually it's sent in the same day during COVID. Um, we've had, we had over a thousand people accessing the site at one time and it was sort of a bit slower, but um, yeah, it's pretty good now. You That's should get the link in a day. Awesome. That's really mm -hmm. exciting that like the forms are there. Like it's so incredible for when push came to shove and we're all like frantically scrambling over here. <laughs> Your team in Australia is like, well, we've already put this together. We've got the forms. We've been practicing this. We've published research on it. Like that's so it's, cool. I know, but it's just, I know you guys would have done it too, but you were so, I, I think it's been your reimbursement models because your VA system and your school system, the California school system has been one of the leaders in tele-speech pathology services for decades. Um, and I know the VA, they've been using from the day we invented this, uh, um, we were talking with the VA and they, they've, they've been using it for years. So I, I know it's, it's just been harder in other services for people to be allowed to use mm. telly. But yeah. it gave, gave us time to give you the good evidence so that you could feel comfortable. <laughs> Perfect. Um, I, I want you to go back to, I think it's your second to last slide where you have the different models and then like what this can look like in the future. Okay, and so I'll just drop off this one. Mm -hmm. And I love yep. the last three that you have there where it's like, we can provide like group education, especially like the example you gave to the head and neck cancer population. Um, and this, the middle one there, um, doing like a handover to a local SLP. Like, I think that would be so valuable. Like how many of us get a patient who's been seen by a different SLP, possibly in a different town. Like maybe they've gone to what I call like a destination hospital that has very, very specialized services that they need to access. And then they come back home and they get me. <laughs> And like, I'm going to do the best I can, but oh man, if I could have gotten that direct handoff from that SLP, how much faster could I hit the ground running yeah. and, and benefit the patient with that continuum of care? Like that's yeah. a really exciting feature. Yeah, see, because we, um, as I mentioned, we have a public health service. And so we have a lot of our advanced, um, like our burns unit, our spinal care unit, our head and neck cancer care, they tend to be in the larger metro hospitals. And then the patient goes home to a smaller um, regional or rural area. And the speechy there, um, usually, you, you know, you send copious notes, or you might have a phone call. What we're, what we're trying to do now a lot more, and this is in the head and neck space, and this has come out of Claire Burns's um, amazing work in head and neck cancer care, which has, um, before the patient leaves the Metro Hospital, the speechy from the Metro Hospital and the patient link up with that clinician who's in their town or in that closer town. And that handover happens. The patient, they comment on, they feel supported. They know they're leaving because there used to be a lot of fear. Oh my God, I'm leaving this. And who's that person? Will they know how to look after me? Um, but now they know and they've met and everyone's connected and that shared model has started. And then what we do, and this is what um, Claire's research in Head and Neck was about, that has also created that link so that when there's trouble or any sort of troubleshooting that has to happen later on, many months down the track, that clinician and patient who's now in his hometown and she's in that hometown, they link back in with that clinician in the Metro Hospital for advice and troubleshooting um, rather than making him get in a car and drive down or get on a plane and fly down. Many of our 
because of these um, centralised services in the metro, for some of our patients, they're flying three hours um, mm. to come down to get something checked. And instead, we just link up by tele. Sometimes it still means they have to come down because they'll have to come down to see an ENT as well or something. But most of the time, actually in Claire's randomised control trial, they were all able to stay where they were at home and be managed remotely. So that just saved so much for everybody. Yes, that's incredible. Um, that is so good. And the third one you have there, the multidisciplinary management, that's what like I'm really excited about. And what I really want to see us get more involved in um, is, is having, I feel sometimes we kind of practice like in isolation and we have to do extra work to make that happen, to make, um, pulling in that referral happen. And if we do like, oh, this person needs this referral, like that happens separate, that happens outside of there, you know? And it's, yep. it's really and again, to see how technology make us yeah. be so much more effective with our job and, and handling that patient's um, altogether. Yeah, and it, and it means things can get managed all in the one. And again, that model, we our experience with that has really come again out of our head and neck cancer care because, you know, our patients following chemo radiotherapy, um, you know, they need dietetics, they need speech. But often, you know, they have to come up in the morning to see the speech pathologist, then they've got an appointment at four with the dietitian. I mean, it's just craziness versus they can just stay at home or they can be somewhere else and the two professions can be together because for us that's a reimbursement model that's possible we can do that so both the dietitian and the speech here there all issues get managed in that one session it's a little bit of a longer session but it's efficient everyone then is on the same page the speechy knows what the dietitian's doing i mean it is it's a very efficient model for everybody and again, it just continually reminds the patient that they're under this care team of people who are working together, not, you know, well, I got told that by her and now you're telling me this and can you talk to her? And Absolutely. Like that's happened in my practice as well. I'll ask, um, or almost like vice versa, have you ever heard the term aphasia before? And they're like, no, no one's ever used that me. And I'm like, you know, I'm an outpatient. I'm like, they've had multiple other levels of care before they get to me. And I'm just like, okay, well, okay, let's talk about that now, you know? And so <laughs> they do. And then when I bring up something they've never heard before, they start getting concerned. They, yeah. they might start thinking like, well, were, was I being seen by really knowledgeable practitioners? Why didn't they mention something like this? This seems important. So yeah, and again, it also, um, because we also know, we all know that our patients in the enormity of everything that's going on, they don't hear and, you know, we know we've done something, but they don't get it. Um, or they've just, it's just, they're too overwhelmed to process it. And again, you know, we see that all the time in cancer mm -hmm. care. So again, it's sort of also just letting them, again, see everyone together and have confidence in everybody and know that they are all there for them and that when they're in the, if they have to go back down to the big metro hospital, she's the person who's looking after you. But she and my person who's at home with me talk all the time and know how to, you know, um, that's the stuff uh, that makes, again, patient-centred care. It's not all about us. It's about them. Yeah, that is so true. Um, 
a lot of our facilities, um, you know, we have our skilled nursing facilities and they may send that patient back to a hospital to have that video swallow study completed. And then the patient comes back to their skilled nursing facility. So the speech and language pathologist at the hospital does the swallow study, you know, writes the report. Well, when the patient goes back, they don't always send the SLPs report back with the patient. They'll send like the two sentences that the radiologist puts on their report. And the two SLPs like aren't connecting and aren't talking. Yeah. Um, and there's so, so many ways that really crucial information gets dropped because they're not talking before the exam and they're not talking after the exam. Yeah. So I think yeah. just we as a profession as well could really benefit from, I mean, maybe we don't need to see each other <laughs> to talk, like we could pick up a phone and do this, but this, this bigger idea of reaching out and being so much more collaborative than practicing mm. in a pocket. Yeah, but even, you know, sometimes you still have to have your separate conversation, of course, with the, that clinician, just clinician to clinician. But sometimes it means you don't have to do that and this because just it's you, the patient, and that clinician, and it's all done in one efficient little tied up bow. Um, with respect to video fluoroscopy, uh, there is, um, there's a lot of different ways that tele is also enhancing in that world. And mm. that's like a whole nother topic. But if we're just talking simply about that whole of information sharing, of course, we have the, you know, the old style model, which is the clinician who does the assessment could send that video or could send that to the next clinician so that they can review it. But when you think about tele, the opportunity of that other clinician just linking in and physically being able to be there and watch and actually be able to see the, the footage as well in real time is also possible. Uh, Claire Burns is do, has been doing a lot of that work um, and is uh, that stuff is sort of in, in the, the streams of all the different ways we can make tele, we can use tele and, and video fluoroscopy. So that whole, again, of linking, if particularly where people have to go to another site for that assessment, um, but still allowing that local clinician, she doesn't have to wait three weeks for the report and three weeks for the video or something, she can actually link in and be physically watching in the session as well. So there's all these other that training, am I going professional training? If you want to watch somebody else doing a dysphagia assessment, yes. you can yes. link in and it's via telly. So yeah. Yeah. Lots of lots of options. That yeah, that's a really exciting feature that you mentioned. You know, a way for us to to keep learning and growing is by watching people who have been doing this so long and um, seeing how they go about it. Like that's one of my favorite ways to learn is is to watch how it's being done, to learn. Also yeah. part of it is kind of learning the language, like how to describe something, how to yes. prepare a patient for something. Like what's the best type of language to use that really um, puts the patient at ease, gives them confidence, and um, you know we're not using too much jargon or any jargon at all, but we're also not like simplifying something below like <laughs> what they can totally understand. Exactly. And so if you've got that really great, strong, experienced clinician having an in-person session there in her clinic room and you can link in via tele to watch, of course, with the patient's permissions and all that sort of thing, of course. But it's, it's like being a student again, but you don't have to physically drive to that hospital or you can watch an expert from another country uh, do their sessions. Um, 
and and just learn. And we're looking at those sorts of options as well for professional development training um, for here in Australia. Because again, distances. If a clinician leaves their service to come down and watch another clinician for a couple of days, um, then you know no one's seeing your patients at home. I mean, there's all those things. But mm-hmm. she can just link in. You know, Tuesday morning at ten a.m. Watch a session. Next Wednesday at eleven o'clock, watch a session. So yeah. That's awesome. That's really incredible. Um, all right. Well, Professor Elizabeth Ward, this was wonderful. Thank you so, so much. This was really informative and beneficial as one of our guests described it in our comment section today. So I totally agree. Thank you so, so much. And um, a quick reminder to our participants, um, please take the quiz and the survey within the next uh, five hours for it to, um, for your CEU credit to count for today. And if you have any questions about that, please reach out um, to speechtherapypd.com and um, find out. All right, so that's it for me. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you again, Professor Ward. Okay, thanks. Have a lovely evening. Thank you for joining us on Talking Teletherapy. Remember to visit our website, speechtherapypd.com teletherapy for information about upcoming episodes and webinars. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. If you would like a discount on a pod course membership to speechtherapypd.com to earn the ASHA CEUs, enter in the coupon code TALKING20 for $20 off the pod course membership. Thanks for joining us and have a great week. Thank you.